0: Chapter Eleven, Part One of *The Star of Gettysburg*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. *The Star of Gettysburg* by Joseph A. Alschuler. Chapter Eleven: The Calvary Combat, Part One. Harry was a fine sleeper. One learns to be in long campaigns most of those about him slept as well and the ten thousand horses which had been ridden hard in the great display during the day also sank into quiet the restless hoofs ceased to move now and then there was a snort or a neigh but the noise was slight on fleetwood hill or in the surrounding forest a man came through the thicket soon after midnight and moved with the greatest caution toward the hill on which the artillery was ranged he was in neither blue nor grey just the plain garb of a civilian but he was of a strong figure, and his smoothly-shaven face, with his great width between the eyes and massive chin, expressed character and uncommon resolution. The intruder, he was obviously such, because he sought with the minutest care to escape observation, never left the shelter of the bushes. He had all the skill of the old forest-runners, because his footsteps made no sound as he passed, and he knew how to keep his figure always in the shadows until it became a common blur with them. His was a most delicate task, in which discovery was certain death. But he never faltered. His heart beat steadily and strong. It was an old risk to him, and he had the advantage of great natural aptitude, fortified by long training in a school of practice where a single misstep meant death. The sharp eyes of the spy missed nothing. He counted the thirty pieces of artillery on the hill. He estimated with amazing accuracy the number of Stuart's horsemen. He saw a thousand proofs that the heavy firing he had heard in the course of the day was not due to battle with northern troops. Although he stopped at times for longer looks, he made a wide circuit about the Confederate camp, and he was satisfied that Stuart, vigilant and daring though he might be, was not expecting an enemy. Shepard's heart for the first time beat a little faster. He had felt as much as any general the northern defeats and humiliations in the East but like officers and soldiers he was not crushed by them he even felt the tide might be about to turn lee evading the north would find before him many of the difficulties which had faced the northern generals attacking the south shepard a man of supreme courage resolved that he would spare no effort in the service to which he had devoted himself he spent fully four hours in the thickets and then feeling that he had achieved his task bore away toward the river Taking off his coat and belt with pistols in it, and fastening them about his neck, he swam with bold strokes to the other side of the stream. However, had anyone been on the watch at that very point, it was not likely that he would have been seen. It was the approach of dawn, and heavy mists were rising on the Rappahannock, as they had risen at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Shepard gave the countersign to the pickets, and was shown at once to General Pleasanton, an alert, vigorous man who was awaiting him. His report was satisfactory, because the cavalry general smiled and began to send quick orders to his leaders of divisions. But the peace in Stuart's command was not broken that night. No one had seen the figure of the spy sliding through the thickets, and Harry and his comrades in the inn of the greenwood tree were very warm and snug in their blankets. As day came he yawned, stretched, closed his eyes again, thinking that he might have another precious fifteen minutes but, recalling his resolution, sprang to his feet and began to rub his eyes clear. He had slept fully dressed, like all the rest, and he intended to go down to a brook in a few minutes and bathe his face. But he first gave Sherburne a malicious shove with his foot, and bade him wake up, telling him that it was too late for an alert cavalry captain to be sleeping. Then Sherburne also yawned, stretched, and stood up, rubbing his eyes. The others about him rose, too, and everybody felt chilled by the river fog, which was uncommonly heavy. Breakfast for me, said Sherburne. Not just now, I think, said Harry. Listen, aren't those rifle shots? patter-patter, distant but clear in the morning, came from a point down the stream. You're right, exclaimed Sherburne in alarm. It's on our side of the river, and it's increasing fast. As sure as we live, the enemy has crossed and attacked. They were not left in doubt. Pickets running in told them the heavy force of northern cavalry was across the Rappahannock, and was charging with vigor. In fact, two of the divisions had passed the fords unseen in the fog, and were now rushing Stuart's camp. But Stuart, although surprised, never for an instant lost his presence of mind. Throughout the southern lines the bugle sounded the sharp call to horse. It was full time. The outposts had been routed already, and were driven in on the main body. Harry ran to his horse, which had been left saddled and bridled for any emergency. He leaped upon him and rode by the side of Sherburne, whose troop was already in line. They could not see very well for the mist, but the fire in front of them from cavalry carbines had grown into great violence. It made a huge shower of red dots against the white screen of the mist, and now they heard shouts and the beat of thousands of hoofs. "'They're making for our artillery!' exclaimed Sherburne with true instinct. "'Follow me, men. We must hold them back for a few minutes at least.' Sherburne and his gallant troops were just in time. A great force of cavalry in blue suddenly appeared in the whitish and foggy dawn, and charged straight for the guns. Without delaying a moment Sherburne flung his troops in between, although they were outnumbered twenty to one or more. He did not expect to stop them. He merely hoped to delay them for a few minutes, and therefore he offered himself as a sacrifice. Harry was beside Sherburne as they galloped straight toward the northern cavalry, firing their short carbines, and then swinging their sabres. "'They'll ride over us,' he shouted to Sherburne. "'But we'll trouble them a little as they pass,' the captain shouted back. Harry shut his teeth hard together. A shiver ran over him, and then his face grew hot. The pulses in his temple beat heavily. He was sure that Sherburne and he and all the rest were going to perish. The long and massive northern line was coming on fast. They too had fired their carbines, and now thousands of sabers flashed through the mist. Harry was swinging his own sword, but the great force bore down upon them. The white mist seemed to turn red, and the long line of horsemen fused into a solid mass. its front flashing with steel. He became conscious, as the space between them closed rapidly, that a heavily crackling fire was bursting from a wood between the northern cavalry and the river the southern skirmishers brushed away at first had returned swiftly and now they were sending a rain of bullets upon the blue cavalrymen many saddles were emptied but the line went on and struck sherburne's troop harry saw a man lean from his horse and slash at him with a sabre he had no sabre of his own only a small sword but he cut with all his might at the heavy blade instead of the man and he felt rather than saw the two weapons shattered to pieces then his horse struck another, and reeling in the saddle, he snatched out a pistol and began to fire at anything that looked like a human shape. He heard all about him a terrible tumult of shots and shouts and the thunder of horses' hoofs. He still saw the red mists and a thousand sabres flashing through it, and he heard too the clash of steel on steel. The northern line had been stopped one minute, two minutes, and maybe three. He was conscious afterward that, in some sort of confused way, he was trying to measure the time but he was always quite certain that it was not more than three minutes. Then the northern cavalry passed over them. Harry's horse was fairly knocked down by the impetus of the northern charge, and the young rider was partly protected by his body from the hoofs that thundered over them. Horse and rider rode together. Harry found that the reins were still clenched in his hand. His horse was trembling all over from shock, and so was he, but neither was much harmed. Beyond him the great cavalry division was galloping on, and he gazed at it a moment or two in a kind of stupor, but he became conscious that the fire of the southern skirmishes on its flank was growing heavier, and that many horses without riders were running loose through the forest. Then his gaze turned back to the little band that had stood in the path of the whirlwind, and he uttered a cry of joy as he saw Sherburne rising slowly to his feet, the blood flowing from a wound in his left shoulder. It isn't much, Harry, said the captain. It was only the point of the sabre that grazed me, but my horse was killed, and the shock of the fall stunned me for a moment or two. Oh, my poor troop! There was good cause for his lament. Less than one fourth of his brave horsemen were left unhurt or with but slight wounds. The wounded who could rise were limping away toward the thickets, and the unwounded were seeking their mounts anew. Harry caught a riderless horse. His faculties were now clear and the effect of the physical shock had passed. We held him three minutes at least, Captain, he cried, and it may be that three minutes were enough. We were surprised, but we are not beaten. Here, jump up. We've saved the guns from capture, and listen how the rifle fire is increasing. Sherburne sprang into the saddle, and his little band of surviving troopers gathered around him. They uttered a shout, too, as they saw heavy forces of their own cavalry coming up and charging, saber in hand. Inspired by the sight and forgetting his wound, Sherburne wheeled about and led his little band in a charge upon the Northern flank. A desperate battle with sabers ensued. Forest and open rang with shouts and the clash of steel, and hundreds of pistols flashed. The Northern horsemen were driven back. Davis, who led them here, a Southerner by birth, but a regular officer, a man of great merit, seeking to rally them, fell, wounded mortally a strong body of illinois troopers came up and turned the tide of battle again the southern horsemen were driven back some of them were taken prisoners and a part of stuart's baggage became a northern prize this portion of the southern cavalry under jones which harry and sherburne had joined now merely sought to check the northern advance until stuart could arrive every one expected stuart such a brilliant cavalryman could not fail but the northern force was increasing Buford and his men were coming down on their flank. It seemed that the Confederate force was about to be overwhelmed again, but suddenly their guns came into action. Shell and canister held back the northern force, and then arose from the southern ranks the shout, "Stuart! Stuart!' Harry saw him galloping forward at the head of his men, his long yellow hair flying in the air, his saber whirled aloft in glittering circles, and he felt an immense sensation of relief. Leading his division in person, Stuart drove back the northern horsemen, but he in his turn was checked by artillery and supporting columns of infantry in the wood. Plessington, the Union leader, was showing great skill and courage. Having profited by his enemy's example, he was pressing his advantage to the utmost. Already he had found in Stuart's captured baggage instructions for the campaign, showing that the whole southern army was on its way toward the great valley to march thence northward. And he resolved instantly to break up this advance as much as possible. Plessington pressed forward again, and Stuart prepared to meet him, but Harry, who was keeping by the side of Sherburne, saw Stuart halt suddenly. A messenger had galloped up to him, and he brought formidable news. A heavy column of horsemen had just appeared directly behind the Southern cavalry and was marching to the attack. Stuart was in a trap. Harry saw that Stuart had been out-generaled, and again he shut his teeth together hard. To be out did not mean that they would be outfought. The northern force in their rear was a third division under Gregg, and Stuart sent back cavalry and guns to meet them. Harry now saw the battle on all sides of him. Cavalry were charging, falling back, and charging again. The whole forces of the two armies were coming into action. Nearly twenty thousand sabers were flashing in the sunlight that had driven away the fog. Harry had never before seen a cavalry battle on so grand a scale, but the confusion was so great that it was impossible for him to tell who was winning. The northern force took Fleetwood Hill, Stuart retook it, and then he sought to meet the cavalry division in his front, and drove it to the woods, where it reformed and hurled him back to the hill. The northern division, under Gregg, that had come up behind, fell with all its force on the southern flank had it driven in the southern lines here pleasanton's victory would have been assured but the men in grey knowing that they must stand stood with a courage that defied everything the heavy northern masses could not drive them away and then stuart whirling about charged the north in turn with his thousands of horsemen they were met by more northern cavalry coming up and the combat assumed a deeper and more furious phase sherburne with the fragment of his troop and harry by his side was in the charge the effect of it upon Harry, as upon his older comrade, was bewildering. The combatants, having emptied their pistols or thrust them back in their belts, were now using their sabers alone. Nearly twenty thousand blades were flashing in the air. Again the battle was face to face, and the lines became mixed. Riderless horses emerging from the turmoil were running in all directions, many of them neighing in pain and terror. Men dismounted and wounded were crawling away from the threat of the trampling hoofs. The gunners fired the cannon whenever they were sure they would not strike down their own, but the horsemen charged upon them and wrenched the guns from their hands, only to have them wrenched it back again by the Southerners. It was the greatest cavalry battle of the war, and the spectacle was appalling. Many of the horses seemed to share the fury of their riders, and kicked and bit. Their biting hoofs raised an immense cloud of dust through which the blades of the sabre still flashed. Harry never knew how he went through it unhurt. Looking back it seemed that such a thing was impossible, yet it occurred, but he became conscious that the southern horsemen, after the long and desperate struggle, were driving back those of the north. They had superior numbers. One of the northern divisions, after having been engaged with infantry elsewhere, failed to come up after daring and skill that deserved greater success, was forced slowly to withdraw. Roused by the roar of the firing, heavy masses of Ewell's infantry was now appearing on the horizon, sent by Lee with orders to hurry to the utmost. Pleasanton, maintaining all his skill and coolness, dexterously withdrew his men across the river, and Stuart did not consider it wise to follow. Each side had lost heavily. Pleasanton, had not only struck a hard blow but he had learned where lee's army lay and moreover he had shown the horsemen of the south that those of the north were on the watch it was late in the afternoon when the last northern rider crossed the rappahannock and harry looked upon a field strewn with the fallen both men and horses then he turned to sherburne and bound up his wounded shoulder for him the hurt was not serious but sherburne although they had been driven off the northern horse was far from sanguine it's a pyrrhic victory he said we had the superior numbers and it was all we could do to beat them back besides they surprised us when we thought we had a patent on that sort of business it's so said harry his sombre glance passing again over the field their feeling was communicated too to the advancing masses of infantry the soldiers when they saw the stricken field and began to hear details from the brethren of the horse shook their heads there was no joy of victory in the southern army that night the enemy, when he was least expected, had struck hard and was away. Harry rode to General Lee and gave him as many details as he could of the cavalry battle, to all of which the general listened without comment. He had reports from others also, and soon he dismissed Harry, who took up his usual night quarters with his blankets under a green tree. Here he found Dalton, who was eager to hear more. They say that the Yankees, although inferior in numbers, pushed us hard, "'Harry, is it so?' he asked. "'It is. And they caught us napping, too. "'George, I'm beginning to wonder what's waiting for us there in the north.' It was dark now, and he gazed toward the north, where the stars already twinkled serenely in the sky. It seemed to him that their army was about to enter some vast, illimitable space, swarming with unknown enemies. He felt for a little while a deep depression, but it was partly physical. His exertions of the day had been tremendous and the intense excitement, too, had almost overcome him. The watchful Dalton noticed his condition, and wisely said nothing, allowing his pulses to begin their normal beat. It was nearly an hour before his nerves became quiet, and then he sank into a heavy sleep. In the morning youth had reasserted itself, both physically and mentally. His doubts and apprehensions were gone. The unconquerable army of northern Virginia was merely marching again to fresh triumphs. Although Hooker now understood Lee's movement, and was pushing more troops forward on his side of the Rappahannock, the Southern General, with his eye ever on his main object, did not cease his advance. He had turned his back on Washington, and nothing, not even formidable eruptions like that of Pleasanton, could make him change his plan. The calls from the Valley of Virginia became more frequent and urgent. Messengers came to Lee, begging his help. Milroy at Winchester with the strong force was using rigorous measures the people claimed that he had gone far beyond the rules of war jackson had come more than once to avenge them and now they expected as much of lee end of chapter 11 part 1 recording by rick cornwall